So this morning we've been singing about God's holiness. This is God's foremost attribute. Whenever finite creatures have an encounter with God, it is His holiness which they first observe. Like in Isaiah chapter 6, when the prophet sees this heavenly vision of the Lord in all of His glory, the first words out of his mouth are these, Woe is me, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. God is holy. What is meant by God's holiness? Well, God's holiness is his otherness. It's his otherness. He is different from you and me. First, he is separate from the world as its creator, but then he is also absolutely morally perfect. So perfect that God cannot even stand to be in the presence of sin. So we read in Psalm 5, verse 5, You are not a God who wills lawlessness, nor shall the evildoer dwell with you. And friends, as the eternal Son of God, our Lord Jesus is holy. Day and night around His throne, the angels declare, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The New Testament even tells us that that vision Isaiah saw there in chapter 6 of his book, that was Christ upon the throne. Our Lord Jesus is absolutely holy. And it's his will that we be holy too. We read of this in Ephesians chapter 5. We're told here that the very purpose for which Christ came and redeemed a church is so that he would have a holy bride for himself. It says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So Christ wants a church that is pure in doctrine, pure in affection, pure in practice, a church of absolute holiness. And holiness not just positionally, because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us the moment we believed, but he also wants a holiness in experience. He wants us growing every day toward greater godliness. Friends, this means that one of the greatest crimes that we could be guilty of as a church is to be indifferent to holiness. And that's what we see in today's text. So we are continuing our series through the book of Revelation this morning, we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 1029. Now, this text is a letter dictated by Christ himself to a church in Thyatira, which was a, a little town in western Turkey. And the entire lesson of this letter is that Christ wants a holy church and that he wants us as members of his church to contend for holiness every day of our lives. 
Now, as we begin, I'd like to offer a prayer just to prepare us to receive the message of the text, and then we'll look at it closely together. So let's bow now. Father, we thank you so much for a beautiful Sunday morning with which to gather as a church family. Thank you, Lord, for each one who is here. Lord, would you open their eyes to see wonders from your word? Would you open their hearts to warmly receive the truths of your word? Would you help them to see the beauty of holiness, that we would see you as the supremely holy being, that we would delight in your holiness, and that we would wish to be like you more every day? Help us, Lord, to contend for holiness in our local church. Help us to understand the weight of that responsibility as we work through today's passage together. Lord, might your Holy Spirit come. Might he do this great work among us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so our text begins, verse 18. Here's the introduction to the letter. It says, to the angel of the church of Thyatira, write this, quote, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. So we see here the letter was dictated by Christ to the church in Thyatira. The imagery used of Christ in this verse harkens us back to chapter 1 with John's vision. Christ in heaven. Christ is given three descriptions here. First, he's called the Son of God. This is an affirmation of his divine nature. See, Christ is not, nor has he ever been, merely a man. Christ is the second person of the Trinity. He is eternally God, and that means he possesses all of the attributes of God. He is God robed in human flesh. And then the second description, he has eyes like a flame of fire. This is an affirmation of his position over us as judge. His eyes are like flaming torches. With them, he brings every hidden thing out into the light. Those eyes also test the quality of each man's works, the way a furnace tests the quality of metal. And then he has feet like burnished bronze, an affirmation of his glory, power, and authority. And friends, taken all together, these three descriptions simply assert to us that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord of the world. He's Lord of his church. There's no one like him, and his will, therefore, should prevail in the church. Now, as we move into verses 19 and following, Christ, from his position as our Lord, now makes an evaluation of one of his local churches, namely the church in Thyatira. He evaluates it both in terms of its positive qualities and of its negative qualities. He begins on the positive side, though, verse 19. He says, I know your works. Okay, so he is Lord. He is judge. He has those eyes like torches. He knows everything about his church, the good and the bad. And here he says, he knows our works. Looking at the church in Thyatira, he sees their works of love, faith, service, and patient endurance. Each one of these are commendable qualities. This is what a local church is supposed to be like. We're supposed to love God and neighbor, supposed to trust in God, supposed to spend our lives engaged in ministry, and when those times of difficulty come, we're called to persevere through them. So in all of these ways, 
The church of Thyatira was doing well, and we would do well to follow their example. Just as an aside here, isn't it an encouragement for us to note how Christ knows these things about his church? In fact, the scriptures teach us that there is no good work performed by one of his children that he will not remember on that final day of reward. In the Gospels, Jesus even says that a cup of cold water offered to another in his name will be remembered and rewarded by him. Things that we have long forgotten about, he will never forget. It's a wonderful thing to hear commendation from the Lord Jesus and to know he sees it all, he knows it all, and for every good work there shall be reward. But then we get into verse 20, we find that Christ also knows the vices of his churches. Look what he says here to the church in Thyatira, verse 20, but I have this against you. You've done well on many things. You've not done well here. I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Okay, so the name Jezebel here, this comes from the Old Testament scriptures. Jezebel was the daughter of the pagan king Ethbaal. She eventually married the Israelite king Ahab. And this was a political marriage designed to bring these two kingdoms into a closer alliance. But Jezebel was a committed Baal worshiper. And so from the moment she moved into Israel until the end of her life, she labored to turn God's people into idolaters. She imported 450 prophets of Baal into Israel. She murdered the true prophets of God. She set up altars and statues to false gods, including Baal and Asherah. She even introduced religious prostitution into Israel and a host of other moral outrages. This was Jezebel. Now here, in the church of Thyatira, there was a similar woman. Christ calls her Jezebel, not because that was her real name, but because Christ wishes to link this woman to the original Jezebel. Her activities in the church of Thyatira were comparable to what the original Jezebel was doing in Israel. Verse 20 explains her activities there in the church. She was claiming to receive divine revelations from God. She claimed to be a prophetess. And then we see, secondly, on the basis of that claim, she had assumed a pastor-like role in the church, teaching her doctrines to the gathered assembly, something the scriptures say ought not to be done. And then regarding the content of that teaching, it was content that completely undermined the pure gospel of Christ. We see that in the verse. It was doctrine which was influencing God's people to practice sexual immorality. And it was also influencing them to associate with pagan idolatry. Now, friends, these were the kinds of things that Christ had called this church out of. 
Okay, they had been residents of the pagan city of Thyatira, members of the Roman Empire. This had been their lives before Christ. They were idol worshipers. They were sexually immoral. They practiced every moral outrage. But God, through Christ and through the messengers that he had sent, he had saved these people out of it. They had repented of all of that. They had come to believe in the true and living God through Christ. They had embraced the gospel. They were becoming a pure church for Christ, a pure bride for the Lord. But now this this individual, this one traded the church. She's not a believer herself, but she has entered the church so as to gain access to these Christians. And she is claiming false things. She is promulgating evil doctrines. She is influencing the members of this church to continue identifying as Christians, but to live like they used to as pagans. Apparently, she'd been doing this for a very long time. Verse 21, it says, I, Christ, gave her, Jezebel, time to repent. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So she had been there for a while, and the Lord Jesus had been gracious to her. He gave her time to see the error of her ways, to forsake it, to join the church as a, as a true member of the church. She refused. She continued to teach her false doctrines and practices. And in fact, her influence in the church was growing. If you look in verse 23, Christ notes that this woman had children. These are not biological children. They're children in the sense of being people who have adopted her teachings and are now following her example. So she's there spreading false doctrine. People are believing it. The numbers are growing. And she has this group within the church beginning to go back into their former paganism. And Christ knew this was happening. Nothing escapes our Lord's notice. Not the good things about a church, not the bad things about a church. And this was certainly one of the worst things that a church could experience. But friends, do you know what the greatest sin of this church was? It's mentioned in verse 20. The greatest sin of all is that this church as a whole was tolerating the situation. Do you see that? I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Friends, from childhood, we are taught that tolerance is a good thing. That it's a virtue. And in many cases, it is especially in our communities and in our workplaces, it's very important that we remember the humanity of everyone that we interact with, that we treat all people with love and respect, regardless of their vast differences in belief and value system. That kind of tolerance is important. But friends, there are also times in life when tolerance is not okay. And within the church, it is not okay to tolerate false doctrine or unrepentant sin. It is not okay to compromise the pure gospel of Christ or the demands of Christian discipleship. 
It is not okay for a local church to blur the distinction between God's people and the devil's people. There must be bold, sharp lines kept between them. These lines must be maintained even if the person leading the charge is claiming to have divine warrant for it, like this woman Jezebel. In fact, listen to the Apostle Paul's words in Galatians chapter 1. Here he writes to the church in Galatia. He says the following, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Then Paul adds this. He says, but even if we apostles or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel, let him be accursed. So even if the spokesperson is one of the 12 apostles of Christ, even if it's an angel direct from heaven to earth, if they are teaching doctrines that are contrary to the pure gospel of Christ, doctrines which would blur the line between God's people and the devil's people, let such a person be put out, have no tolerance Put them out of the church. Let them be accursed. This was the great sin in the church of Thyatira, my friends. It was not that false teaching or immorality had cropped up within the congregation. Okay, Within a fallen world, this is going to happen. Every single local church for all time is going to have this problem. There will be false teachings that arise There will be cases of moral scandal, which must painfully be dealt with. These kinds of things happen. Those weren't the great sins of this church. Their great sin was that they did nothing about it. They were tolerating it. In other words, they were indifferent to their own holiness as a local church. And so Christ wrote this letter to them telling the church that this must stop. They must stop being tolerant of false teaching in their midst. They must stop being tolerant of moral scandal. And he tells them in the following verses that if they wouldn't stop it themselves, that Christ would stop it himself. You see, holiness is really important to Christ. He is absolutely holy himself. And he redeemed the church to be a holy bride. Holiness is important to Christ. And he will make the church holy if she will not do it herself. Look at verses 21 through 23. Here we see the the actions that he would commence against the unholy element in the church. He says... I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So behold, verse 22, here's what I'm going to do about it. I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. Verse 23, and I will strike her children dead. And so we have a terrible warning 
in these verses. First, Christ gives the warning in figurative language. Then he states it very plainly. Figuratively, he says, this this unrepentant false teacher and all who associate with her, I'm going to throw them all onto a sickbed. The the idea here is they want the bed of immorality. Well, I'll give them a bed, but it'll be a sickbed. And then stated plainly, he says, here's what it means. I will thrust them into great tribulation, and they shall not endure. They shall perish. That was his threat to this church. You know, friends, this is how God dealt with the original Jezebel. He cut her life short. It was a, an awful end. He promises to do the same to this new Jezebel and to all of her followers those who had proved through their words and actions that they were no disciples of his. My friends, this is what God's holiness means for those who do not forsake their sin. It's a terrible reality, but this this is the case. Those who, who will not see their sin for what it is, those who will not commit themselves to putting it off, to forsaking it, those who will not turn in wholehearted repentance and trust in Christ, clinging to his all-sufficient sacrifice for sins, those who will not commit themselves to living as he lived, those will show that they were never really his to begin with. They will be cast out into great tribulation and then into the outer darkness. Now, friends, considering this terrible truth, Will you not come to him in repentance today? Notice the graciousness of our Lord. He said, verse 21, I've given her time to repent. And then he says, verse 22, this is what I threaten. If they will not repent, I will bring it about. Even even to this point, Christ was still extending his grace, saying, if they will only turn, nothing that I have said will come to pass. The day would come when they would cross the line of no return, and then Christ would carry out his threatenings. But my friend, our Lord is so, so gracious to us. He gives years and years of life, years of exposure to his general revelation, which cries out to us of his goodness and his grace. And then he exposes us to his written revelation, and we learn all that he is for us and all that he's done for us through Christ. And we learn about his love for us in sending his son Jesus to live a perfect life, to die in substitution for our sins, and then to rise again, showing his victory over death and hell. He extends to us the opportunity to trust in him, with wholehearted, repentant faith. And he says to those of us who do so, you will now be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of my son. You will go from once not being my people to now being my very children, from being cast out into the utter darkness to having a rich inheritance with me forever and ever. This is what he holds out to us. And friends, in in light of the awful warnings and the great promises, should you not trust in Christ? Let's dwell on those promises a little further. We see these in verses 24 and 25. He's spoken now to the unholy element within the church. Now he's going to talk to the persevering saints. 
Look at what wonders he has in store for them. He says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, those of you who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, okay, the Jezebel's teachings were called the deep things of Satan because they were based on lies about God and his character and his nature, lies about sin and right and wrong and true and false. He says, but you, you in the church who have not followed the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. And there's the first promise, promise of rescue. The promise of rescue. coming for his church. The bridegroom will come for his bride. And his coming will be personal and visible and glorious. And when he comes, he will first raise the dead in Christ, giving them new glorified bodies. And then he will take those living in Christ and he will transform them without their needing to taste death. He will gather them all up to himself, and he promises to be with them forever and ever. That's the promise he makes to his true church. And that's the promise that he offers here to the faithful remnant in the church of Thyatira. He says, to you, I will come. Just hold tight. I will come. I will rescue you. I will gather you up. The rest, I will not. They will be thrust into great tribulation, but I'm coming for you. I will rescue you out. But then it gets even better. Look at verses 26 through 29. He says, and the one who conquers... That is, the the faithful, persevering disciple to the one who conquers, who keeps my words until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. So the first promise was rescue. This second promise is rule. I will rescue you. I will gather you to myself to be my bride. And then together, together as groom and bride, we shall rule the kingdom forever and ever. We shall rule it together. Remarkable promise. My friends, Christ is the king. The church is his bride. Those who persevere to the end will be right there at his side, ruling alongside of him when that kingdom comes to earth. And friends, if rescue and rule are not incentive enough to persevere, he gives us one more promise. Look at verse 28. He says, And I will give him the morning star. The morning star. What is the morning star? Well, according to Revelation chapter 22, the morning star is Christ himself. It's Christ himself. You see, just as the morning star brings to, the end, brings to an end a long, dark night, so too the return of Christ will bring to an end this long, 
dark era of human history. He is like that first break of light after a long night. Christ's return to earth will mean the beginning of the end for sin and sickness and death and pain. It'll be the beginning of the renewal of all things. And his holy church will be right there as it all happens, witnessing the full renewal of the heavens and the earth. My friends, what a stark contrast we have in today's text. It is truly the contrast between life and death. To his holy church, those redeemed by the blood of his lamb, those who persevered in pure doctrine, pure affection, pure practice, who persevered showing they were truly his. To them there will be rescue and rule and full redemption forever with Christ. To those who forsake him, showing their love for that which he hates, those who embrace false doctrines, who chase after the the life of those who do not know God in Christ, for those who fail to persevere to the end, they will head to great tribulation and then to their demise. Great contrast in this text. Life and death at stake in what we do with Christ and his demands. My friends, our Lord is holy. He wants a holy church. In fact, he has committed himself to having a holy church. Holy positionally, as we enjoy the righteousness of Christ clothing us the moment we believe. But also a church holy in practice. One that loves godliness. That that turns away from all that God is displeased with. He is committed to having a church that loves what is holy. He has entrusted to the church the responsibility to maintain its own holiness, to guard the purity of its doctrine, affection, and practice. But if the church abdicates its responsibility, he will step in. He will do it for himself. He will have a pure bride one way or the other. Here's what that means for all of us today. It means we must commit ourselves to teaching what accords with sound doctrine. We must. We must oppose every false doctrine that may arise within or around us. It means that we must pursue godliness, having no tolerance for ungodliness within the church's walls. In short, it means earnestly contending for the faith until our Lord returns. And friends, we must do this no matter what other local churches decide to do, no matter what the prevailing culture has to say about it, we must commit ourselves to this, because this is what our Lord would have us to do. Now finally, verse 29, our Lord concludes, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Did you hear what the Spirit said to you today? Will you heed his words? Will you be holy as he is holy? Will you contend for the holiness of this local church as he would have you to do? Friends, let us close our time in prayer. Father, you are holy, 
Your Son is holy. Your Spirit is holy. And your Son came to redeem a holy bride. Help us, Lord, to become lovers of holiness. Help us to contend for holiness. Help us to not be like the church in Thyatira, which tolerated the presence of a false prophet. She led so many away from the truth, and yet the the church did nothing about it. They were indifferent to holiness. Lord, let us never be like that. Help us, Lord, humbly and with a reliance on your power and grace. Persevere right on through to the end. Lord, we long for your son's return. We, we long for the rescue, the rule, the full redemption that that will mean. Help us to be faithful in the meantime. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.